Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Jonathan Moo. Jonathan Moo is a professor at Whitworth University whose teaching encompasses courses in New Testament, Greek, science and faith, and environmental studies. He also holds graduate degrees in both biblical studies and wildlife ecology. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to Anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today we have Dr. Jonathan Moo at Whitworth University. Dr. Moo holds graduate degrees in both biblical studies and wildlife ecology, and his teaching encompasses courses in the New Testament, Greek, exegesis, science and faith, and environmental studies. Dr. Moo, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So we uh, love to start off the Anchor podcast, especially when we're talking to an academic heavyweight. You hold a PhD from Cambridge, which if I could do life over, that would be my goal, I think. <laughs> I'd love to hear, like, what, what, what were you like as a, as a young child? Did you, did you love learning early on? Were you just tearing apart books as a four-year-old? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think I loved learning. I loved reading. Uh, both my parents read all the time, both to us, and our book was, our house was full of books. Um but ironically, I hated school as a kid. So I used to be the kid, even through high school, that everyone would come to to ask, how many days to summer break? And I would be keeping track. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not sure why I didn't like school. But, I, you know, I went to just kind of standard public schools and had plenty of great teachers, but just found it boring and stifling and um, liked the social side of it, but really just couldn't wait for the freedom and unstructured play and exploring of summertime and getting to read what I wanted to. So there are still people in my life who, when they realize I've spent my entire life now in schools and in academia, just can't believe it because they remember me as a kid and how much I hated school hmm. and couldn't wait to get out of it. So re- read what you wanted to. Were you were you reading like Lewis and the Space Trilogy or you read <laughs> like sports magazines? What were you, what were you into? Yeah, it would be more C.S. Lewis type stuff. So, you know, just any books that my parents would kind of leave aside and I would pick up and want to want to read from kids books to, you know, to uh, more, I guess, adult level books just as a kid, because, you know, it was there and looked exciting and interesting. So, um, so a wide range of stuff. I, you know, my my mom was a stay at home mom. And so she was always great to just listen to any questions I had and, you know, always ready to. Um, kind of engage anything that I wondered about. And my dad was the same way. He was an academic um, and read not just theology, which was his discipline, but also um, just widely in history and biography and politics. Um, Hmm. And it was kind of the sort of home where you just could have dialogue about anything. Dinner table conversations might be about faith or politics or history or anything that was going on with us in school. Um, so I think that context was just rich and felt fun and unstructured to kind of explore what you wanted to, whereas school just felt, I don't know, restrictive or stifling. Yeah. Somehow. And were you public school or private Christian school or? 
It was uh, it was at public school, so just yeah. pretty standard. Yeah, public schools, and you know, I'm sure the schools were great. My teachers were great, but just didn't resonate. Yeah, with me. No, I, I I can relate very much. So, um, well, walk us through if you would, kind of your academic journey. I I've never talked to someone who holds graduate degrees in both biblical studies and wildlife ecology. Are there other people that have done that? That seems really unique. I haven't met anyone who's done quite what I have. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> it, well, tell, tell us about this journey, how you got in these two worlds that people don't typically put together. Sure. Well, when I got to college, that's when I discovered how much I loved academics. Um, mm. You know, I was suddenly in classes where we were talking about literature and history and having just rich conversations that sparked all sorts of things for me. And so I really came alive to studying and to um, the academic side of life when I was in college. But in college, I was really torn between the humanities and the sciences. So I loved literature and reading from when I was a kid. So I majored in English. Um, but I also just loved the outdoors. I love the natural world and science and math. And so uh, studied biology. So I did, did a double major in English mm. and biology. Um, after that, I was um, planning to go on to graduate programs in wildlife biology. Um, I think my dream was basically just to spend my life in the mountains chasing wolves and elk or something and riding on the side and kind of living an outdoor life. Um, I didn't get enough funding to go to graduate school right after college. I'm stuck in Chicago, had kind of dreamed of moving west my whole life. Um, but was working on the grounds crew of a seminary there, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I thought, well, I'll take classes for this year. And I loved it. I absolutely loved studying theology. It was a crazy year of um, way too much work and way too much reading and writing, um, but just loved it. But still was committed to kind of moving west. And so the next year I got funding. So I went out to Utah State, studied wildlife biology, had a tremendous uh, few years there. Um, but partly because I went through a crisis in my faith during that period, I you know, I started and I was teaching English writing just to make some money on the side. So I was kind of still engaged in that whole humanities side of my life. And I was really enjoying that. Um, and I just, I picked Aquinas off of my shelf at random and started reading lots of Aquinas and went back to Lewis and um, just realized there was lots of questions I wanted to pursue. Um, I was in a church that was somewhat a wonderful nurturing place, but also somewhat anti-academic um, a supervisor who was great, but, you know, uh, very much disdainful of religion um, and feeling like, meanwhile, the church is not putting together my two loves, science and my faith, um, and is neglecting the greatest challenge facing us in our time, um, the ecological crisis. Just completely, it seemed at that stage, not being aware of what other churches and people were doing, but the church was completely unengaged with that. And so, that's what led me then from wildlife biology um, back into theology. I uh, went to Gordon-Conwell in Boston um, and had a tremendous time there um, doing biblical studies. I really wanted to be a theologian. So in other words, to study Christian doctrine, um, which mm -hmm. tries to put together what scripture and uh, tradition and thinkers say about various issues. Um, but I thought I have to start in scripture. I have to start with a biblical text. But of course, that resonated with my background in English literature. And so I really just kind of got stuck into biblical studies um, and had just tremendous mentors at Gordon-Conwell. And then from there was able to go on to Cambridge to do a PhD. And while I was in Cambridge, this most remarkable thing happened where I think it was in my second year of my PhD, um, an institute for science and religion called the Faraday Institute wanted someone who actually had some training in biblical studies as well as in biology to work on a project on Christianity and ecology. And so it was like a position that was written for me. 
Um, and so I actually started that before I finished my PhD and then stayed on there for a number of years working with them and also lecturing in the divinity faculty. Um, and now I'm at this place called Wentworth University in Spokane, Washington, that just is the perfect place that lets me combine my passions for science, for environmental studies, as well as for scripture and teaching Greek and uh, traditional New Testament sorts of courses. And then getting to introduce students to all of that, of course. That's fascinating. So, Jonathan, you have a few publications um, about the environment, but in relation to uh, theology and God. I'm really curious about this because I know we all have our own reasons to believe that, you know, people have become separated from God's creation. But why do you think that is happening um, in today's world? I suppose it's just so easy to live our lives entirely as we are right now, talking to each other from across the country over screens uh, or phones. Um, and the gifts of our technology enables us to kind of live lives that are very centered on ourselves, that are easy um, and virtual um, and divorced from the places that we get our food from, the places that we um, get our air from, the places in which we are rooted and grounded. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's just... So much of our life either demands of us time in front of screens, time away from uh, the natural world, um, or then in our leisure time, what do we do? We Then we sit down and watch Netflix or something because we're tired out from a long day. Um, and so we end up spending our whole lives kind of in this technological world that centers us. Um, yeah. So I just think it's been especially, it's become especially easy to do that. Our food is, you know, the gift of our uh, grocery stores and farmers that provide food for us means we don't even know how our food is raised often. Um, it just turns up for us. Um, and I, I suspect that challenge, if, if it is a challenge, I think it is, of um, living lives that are increasingly separated from the natural world of which we are a part right. is one that's only going to grow. You know, we've we've heard in recent weeks about, you know, Facebook's uh, attempt to build this meta, this yeah. metaverse. Um, and, you know, you have these tech guys in California saying that we should really pursue that. We, we should give up on reality in a sense because the virtual world is going to be so much better. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's going to come at quite a cost. Yeah, I, I could pick your brain about so much of this for, for a long time. I'm, I'm wondering if you're familiar with, with uh, Pope Francis's papal encyclical uh, Laudato Si on the, on the environment. And I am. What, um, in terms of faith traditions, and I'm a convert to Catholicism myself, um, but, but, and I guess it's the way that environmental concerns sit also on the political spectrum, uh, that in these things seem to be kind of wrapped together, that if someone is really, really concerned about God's planet and how we ought to be treating it, that they can get like pigeonholed into, you know, maybe a political position that they actually don't agree with at all. Um, how did that happen? And is there, is there a way out of that? <laughs> I certainly hope there's a way out of that. Um, and how it happened is, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but it, it seems to me that, you know, in very simplistic terms, maybe this isn't accurate, but, you know, for example, in our own country, in the United States, the Republican Party represented lots of values that a lot of Christians shared. Um, and the problem is, is that the Republican Party also came to take on, for whatever reasons, um, kind of a corporatist anti-environmental movement agenda that then influenced Christians. So rather than those people of faith kind of transforming the political party, which they were a part and perhaps remaining more rooted in their, in their faith and in their politics, I think the kind of cultural and political impact of their party affiliation 
changed their faith in a way. Um, it mm. became more about a particular political party than about um, living lives authentically Christian. So, you know, I find, especially when I speak to church groups, but really it's anywhere, so important to separate the centrality, as I see it, of our care for the earth um, mm. from party political ideas. You know, no political party has this figured out. Um, and I think Christians yeah. are always going to have to be countercultural in this issue, as in many others. Um, and it's just sad to me it's become so politicized that we can't see past that. Um, the gift is that when I speak at least to Christian audiences, I can, you know, I can go back to scripture um, and even mm. to people's own experience to find a rooting there that we can share, that we then can ask the questions and we can disagree about how that works itself out precisely in political or economic ways. Um, but to recognize the centrality of our calling um, as followers of Christ, uh, to seek the reconciliation of all things that God is bringing about. Yeah. I, so you were studying wildlife ecology before you started studying, I guess, the Bible more seriously. And then you were talking about how you went through a crisis in your faith as well. How did studying um, the Bible and learning more about God actually benefit your work? I guess as a as a, a wildlife ecologist or or your understanding of the environment as well. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think you know, for me, uh, I don't know if you know the British novelist Evelyn Waugh um, from the early twentieth century. I'm a big um, Brideshead fan. It was, it was, oh, are you? And I need to. I've done it a couple of times, and I want to redo it again. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really, I mean, some of his novels are just quite good fun too. But he yeah. uh, he was, a, as you probably know, uh, a convert to the Christian faith. And I actually love his way of describing uh, Christian conversion. He says something like, it's about stepping across the mantle into the real world that God created, and then begins the delicious process of exploring it limitlessly. And so for me, I think my Christian faith and the biblical literature as a whole opens up the world of nature as the arena of God's glory, um, as the place that discloses something true about ourselves and about God, um, and kind of invites us to explore, to learn, uh, to um, to use, and to derive our life from this, this marvelous, beautiful, glorious world that God has made. So, in a way, it kind of inspired my work in science um, at its best, um, and then also did something more than science could do on its own, of course. It you know, science can't tell us how to act. You know, this is actually mm. part of the problem with a lot of the rhetoric we hear on the environmental issues is just follow the science, listen to the science. And certainly, you know, we ought to attend to the science and take that with utmost seriousness. But the science can't tell us what to do. Um, that mm. requires values. It requires questions of our worldview and our convictions. Um, and Christianity and biblical faith provides that for me, um, a way of seeing um, how on the basis of these things we learn about the world, we might be called to act and to live um, mm. while giving me a bigger vision than just what science can disclose about the natural world. Uh, it's enclosed within this bigger, um, more beautiful conception of reality that's given to me in Christ. So I, I think it, it, can, it can inspire that. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, I mean, as I hear you speaking, if, if your experience kind of within the world of wildlife ecology, if, if you if you kind of felt, though, at times kind of like a lone ranger, I mean, you're, you're also drawing from this treasure, this massive framework. Um, did you feel like you were at times kind of alone in that? Is it a world that's primarily dominated by secular secularists, would you say? Um, it, at least on the surface, it seems that way. Yeah, you know, the benefit of my time in Cambridge especially at the Faraday Institute, was meeting people from around the world for whom their faith was 
very much a central part of their life, scientists of, of all stripes, including biologists. But I, you're right that especially in the States, and, and if I'm honest, especially my experience in wildlife biology, was one that was dominated entirely by secularist, um, sometimes even militant atheist um, kinds of narratives. And, you know, sadly, that is partly the result of some of my scientific teachers having faced so much opposition from Christians mm-hmm. in the States to their work, um, whether whether that was in relationship to evolution and creationism or environmental issues or whatever it was, there was a sense that religious belief and especially American Christianity was antithetical to scientific pursuit. Um, So I certainly, one does feel like often somewhat isolated um, when one approaches one science like that. But to anyone listening who is planning to pursue science, it's, it's good and important to know there are so many people of faith around the world who, again, see their biology, see their physics, see their science actually as an outgrowth of their convictions about who they are as, as God's people called to explore and understand the world. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I also read on your uh, university bio that you like to take your students to the mountains for study and reflection. And I'm somebody who actually really loves uh the mountains. I was like living in West Virginia a few months ago too. And that was, it was the best, uh, best thing ever. Um, I'm wondering if you've seen this have a positive impact on your students. Yeah, I think I have, you know, it's, it's one of the greatest joys of my job is, and especially teaching at a place like Whitworth where I have the freedom to do this is just get students out into places that some of them haven't experienced before. Um, you know, especially students who increasingly spend much of their lives with phones and uh, with social media and so forth, to even take them for a day, as I do with all of my classes every autumn, up to our, um, we have an environmental study center just north of campus here, and I just make them leave all their technology behind and just sit. We we actually read Psalm 104 together, which is a psalm kind of celebrating the diversity of the earth and all of its creatures. And then I make them just sit in silence um, for a few hours sometimes um, and ask them to be attentive, just to look around them um, by themselves and, and look at what they see. And for many of my my students, that's the most important experience they have in that whole autumn semester is just because they've left all this behind and they're able to not only just confront themselves, I think, but actually more importantly, perhaps be open to the world around them and to start seeing things and noticing things they hadn't before, to to be reminded that they're a part of something bigger than themselves, um, that we aren't the center of the universe. Um, You know, even better, I get every other year, I take a group of students uh, to the Cascade Mountains, to a wilderness camp called Tall Timber Ranch uh, for a month in January. And we live in the mountains with no uh, media, no screens or anything for the month. And what happens in that month is just fascinating. And it's for me, it's a taste of what I would call the new creation uh, every time I do this, where our conversations slow down. Um, people are suddenly able to be much more present to each other. I teach them all of the trees uh, while they're there so they can identify the trees. And I'm actually somewhat chastened by the fact that for some of them, that's the most important thing they learn. Like we spend all this time sitting around the fire, reading <laughs> scripture and other texts. You know, I teach them lots of things. We learn to ski and all of this. And yet for them, just actually being able to identify and be attentive to the world around them kind of opens up the world to them even beyond that course um, to see things mm. again. But I think especially in a world where Again, it's increasingly easy to live our lives um, always in front of screens, always separated from the world around us. 
those kinds of experiences become all the more important. Um, again, to be reminded of who we are um, and to learn to be attentive and outward looking uh, to a world that can give us much joy. And many of my students who are most passionate about environmental issues, so-called, for example, are also most prone to despair, um, most prone sometimes to give up. And one of the sources, I think, for keeping us joyful and engaged in all the things that we're called to do is finding those sources of joy and hope and love. And one of those comes for me and for many of my students, it seems, from those moments of being, again, it doesn't have to be some dramatic place like we get to do in my uh, tall timber class in January's, uh, but to be somewhere outside where we're drawn outside of ourselves again. And remember what it is we're fighting for, for this good and beautiful world that, in my view, still testifies to God's glory despite the challenges it faces. So it's a beautiful thing to see that, students. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, just kind of as a side note, I went out to uh, to Wyoming Catholic last March and spent a couple of days out there. And, and the Wyoming Catholic, the students actually give up their cell phone for like the whole time they're on campus for four years. And I, I'm not kidding. I felt like I was talking to like a different species entirely. <laughs> what it actually did is it, it really cast into kind of sharp relief how like ADD the rest of us have become, you know, and yes. I was in one of these classes and I'm like, the, the kids are why aren't they fidgeting with anything? Like they're just <laughs> like, what are you doing? It was, it's so, um, and you, you, you've been teaching as you've kind of seen this, this transition, but I'm wondering if you can tell us actually a bit about, about Whitworth. I've never been on campus. I, I, I keep hearing the name. I feel like kind of more and more, there's not a lot of schools. I don't think kind of universities that are Christian on the West coast. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit about the university. What makes it unique? Sure. Um, and this will probably sound like more of an advertisement than I intend because I just genuinely love this place so much. Um, so when I was in Cambridge, I was I really was planning to teach at a secular university, um, was kind of hoping to maybe stay in Cambridge or Oxford. I love that context. My wife and I love living in Europe. Um, I came to Whitworth because partly of its location, being near mountains and beautiful places, um, but above all, because of the unique community that there is here. Um, it's a place where my whole life is joined up. Um, my life mm. teaching, my academic life, my life with my students, we just, we kind of share all parts of life together um, in, in this learning community. And to me, it's just a beautiful thing what happens when um, the same students I might be hiking with on the weekend or fly fishing with on a Friday are the ones in my class studying Greek on a Monday morning um, or mm. studying ecology or environmental ethics on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, so that kind of sense of community and shared life is one of the things I love. Um, and, you know, and, and we have this ethos of Whitworth of being a school that is rooted in Orthodox Christianity, um, but is ecumenical and welcoming to all students. So it's, we have this interesting approach that all faculty who come here write their own statement of faith. And that is taken with utmost seriousness. Um, but what it means is that there's no kind of boundaries that are set, that one must be this particular sort of Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox Christian. But rather, we're looking for authentic faith, commitment to Christ, kind of looking for that bullseye target of what we might call creedal Christianity, that then is lived out in all sorts of different ways by our faculty. And our students aren't expected to sign any sort of statement of faith. So they come from all backgrounds and all faiths and no faith at all. And we manage in this kind of messy way to live in this rich community together to explore learning. Um, and Whitworth is a place that still values things that I suspect some of your audience value with studying text. You know, I take my students a long ways through Greek and my Greek classes here. 
um, and interdisciplinary study as well. So a thriving environmental science and environmental studies program, for example, where I get to collaborate with my buddies in biology and friends in political science and in education and literature. And it's just a joy to have this community where people really love this place. They love being here. Um, we love our students. For me, it just fits me perfectly. So it's been a, been a joy to be here. I love it. And I, I want to hear more about Cambridge as well. I've never been out there, but I'm going in, in well, I'm going to Oxford in January and I'm, I'm going out there with Keith Nex, who's a good buddy and the head of the Veritas school in Richmond. Uh, and we're actually staying two days at the kilns. Um, have you been oh. kilns before? No, I've never been inside. So I've only been past the outside. Yeah, I, I can't even I can't even sleep when I when I start thinking about this, <laughs> you know for this. But what was it though about? I mean, Cambridge experience there that that just kind of like drew you in so much and was so hard to leave. What I loved about Cambridge was um, the combination of the academic seriousness of it and a place that draws people and academics and thinkers from around the world. So just there's this constant life and kind of buzz that you know sitting at at high table or just at the regular tables with other students, you don't know who might be next to you and who you get to talk to that day. Um, it might be, you know, some uh, famous politician from somewhere else in the world or some scientist that is the leading person in their discipline, what they're studying or a, you know, or a literary critic. And just that kind of interchange of ideas that especially the kind of dining traditions of Cambridge have kept alive is so rich. Um, and of course, the history, the kind of layers that you get really anywhere in Europe, but maybe especially in a place like Cambridge or Oxford. I just love that sense of being a part of, of things that go back and back. And it kind of immerses you in that world if you if you let it, you know, if you embrace that, um, as I sought to do. Um, along One of the interesting things to me about the UK academic culture is again, I mean, in a place like Oxford or Cambridge, you have really, you know, lots of the best of the best people who give their lives to their disciplines. And yet there also is this, maybe because of the way the towns are constructed, that they're very centered on these colleges. Um, you know, European living is much closer. There's no need for a car. You just walk and bicycle everywhere. You know, nearly every day you stop off at the pub after you've been in the library all day and you have conversations. And it's often those informal conversations with your colleagues or as a, as a graduate student, with your fellow graduate students, a lot of the learning takes place. Um, so just that tradition and that atmosphere is one that I found really life-giving, uh, really enjoyed that. My, life, my wife is an art historian, so she, of course, loved living in Europe as well. For that. Oh, wow. Studied at Cambridge as well? Uh, no, she studied at the Courtauld in London. Um, but she loved living living in Cambridge and exploring Europe. That's awesome. So one final question for you that we like to ask all of our podcast guests. Is there a book that has impacted you the most? Well, <laughs> as a biblical scholar, I'd have to say the Bible, I suppose. <laughs> but oh, there used to be some show in the UK that you always, the Bible and Shakespeare was kind of in a given. So you chose something else. Um, <sighs> and if I was going to choose something else, it would still be tough. Um, but if I can, if I can name a writer... It would be Wendell Berry. Um, and perhaps a place to start for your listeners would be this anthology called The Art of the Commonplace, um, edited by Norman Wiersba of Duke. Um, but Wendell Berry is probably the writer that ever since I first encountered him, probably in college, I just returned to again and again. Um, and he, he kind of says the same thing almost in everything that he writes. And I, I especially like his essays and his poetry, although he's written lots of fiction too. Um, but what he says, I feel that I always need to hear. And it's just always expressed in a way that I find compelling and beautiful and want to convey to my students um, about a life that is rooted, that is local, um, that is attentive to the land and to our place and to community. Um, and 
that is a challenge. You know, we talked earlier about the political themes that divide us so much in our country today. And Wendell Berry's vision doesn't line up with any of our politics at all. It just gives us a very different and I think beautiful vision um, of the world. I have my students read Wendell Berry um, in a couple of my classes. And I'll be honest, when I started doing that, when I first came to Whitworth, I was concerned that they would find him, I don't know, too fuddy-duddy or kind of old-fashioned or something, but they just love him. It's been kind of fun to see how they resonate. They recognize that there's something missing, perhaps, about our life life right now that Barry manages to capture in a beautiful and compelling way. And so um, oh, he's become almost a patron saint. I, I just love that. We, uh, about four years ago at a CRC uh, conference, he he read a new story. He, he, must, he must have been in his upper 80s at the time. It was really just beautiful and he was funny and witty and, and, and so really sharp. But I think for an author who kind of gets at the way the industrial revolution just kind of separated us from, you know, from earth and from food and from, uh, you know, in a way that we kind of know intuitively almost, but, but you read him and you're like, ah, like that's part of the problem, you know? And, um, that, that, that is, I actually thought about Wendell Berry before we asked that and you were talking earlier on, I'm like, That, so that's that's fantastic. Um, well, uh, Dr. Moo, this has been been really uh, a delight. I feel like now I've got to get get out there at some point and uh, and, and visit Whitworth and uh, yeah, maybe maybe go on one of your your hikes with you. So yeah, I'd love that. <laughs> Let me know. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.